Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I'm your guest, Derek Broder. And we are your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. And this is episode 103. Derek is an applications engineer involved in writing control software for atmospheric and vacuum robotics used in the semiconductor robotics industry. In his spare time, he runs a YouTube channel called The Current Source, where the primary focus is around electronics. So Derek, is there anything else you want to add to your background before we get this podcast started? I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, Yeah, I'm an applications engineer. I work for a uh, semiconductor robotics company out of Germany. Uh, We're a small company that represents two other uh, larger uh, robotics companies out of Japan. And uh, I write software that controls uh, the robots that go into manufacturing equipment. Uh, So that could be like a a CVD tool or a a plasma etcher or a photolithography tool. Um, So fabs like TI or Intel would buy this equipment to uh, make these wafers. Um, So as you know, the the, um, microchips are are basically grown on these silicon wafers. And uh, the reason that we use these robots is so that people don't handle them manually with their hands because that could introduce particulate that would cause uh, block detch and other issues. Dorito dust? Uh, (laughs) Yeah, Dorito (laughs) dust. Dandruff, you know, the usual stuff. So... uh, (laughs) So basically, I'm involved in the sales trade show kind of stuff, but my primary uh, function is to write software that controls it, communicates with the fab host controller or uh, a local uh, computer that controls everything. Uh, is it like so, just a yeah. kind of a big PLC thing? Um, no, it's actually a dedicated controller that runs um, a couple of different microcontrollers. Don't ask me what they are. I don't remember. <laughs> but it runs its it runs its own firmware. It's got I.O. and, uh, you know, uh, RS-232 LAN connections that you can uh, control all kinds of other peripheral stuff. So the robot is kind of the centralized thing inside of the equipment that uh, controls a lot of the uh, slit valves, load locks, and all that kind of stuff. Awesome. Uh, have, you, yeah. have you actually been to any of the fabs to see the robots? Um, occasionally. It's, it's more um, I'll visit the actual equipment manufacturers. Um, not so much in the fab, but there are a couple of times that I have gone in just to make sure everything is uh, working properly. So I cool. do some traveling. I get to go overseas every now and then, but uh, a lot of it's local. What's the coolest place you've ever been to then? Um, we have a customer out in Austin that that's pretty cool. Those guys are pretty neat. They're you know they appreciate good beer and uh, they're old uh, skaters. You know old skaters from the 80s so we we get along pretty well skaters turned semiconductor farmers yeah (laughs) (laughs) so that's my kind of environment so i I appreciate going out there every now and then and austin's a cool city anyway not as cool as houston though yeah there you go (laughs) (laughs) so yeah in addition to that like um in my spare time i run the youtube channel the current source uh like you already said and uh, i just make videos that are about uh, general electronics um it could be anything that uh you know i just find cool in a a magazine or or, um, an article or just something i'm working on on my desk that uh i think i should dedicate some time to that somebody might uh, benefit from so yeah, so I guess we'll just jump right into the YouTube channel. So what yeah, sure. made you what made you want to start a YouTube channel? Um when I when I go and I try to find information for some kind of circuit or I want to understand something a little better, you know, I usually hit up like everybody does Google or look up data sheets, application notes. But uh, YouTube's also have become a really great resource for electronics and uh, learning new things. Um so I watch 
you know, Dave and uh, Alan Walkie and all the, the usual suspects. And I thought maybe I could contribute uh, some other way, um, building circuits and just showing things that they might not be or, you know, in my own uh, kind of flavor. So, um, and I've always been kind of an introvert. And I think uh, as I get older, I, I care less and less. So I just thought, you know, <laughs> I'm making this stuff anyway, right? Like I've been making stuff since I was 10 years old and I'm too lazy to make a website. So I thought, well, I'll just turn on the camera and, you know, just show people what I'm doing. That's cool. Yeah. So on the, uh, on the, so it's, it's, it's kind of weird that way. Right. Where like, that's why I, I, I built the blog to do that. Cause I guess I was afraid of being on camera. Yeah. So yeah, that's just interesting that where you just went, jumped all in to straight to YouTube. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I wanted to show people what I was working on, but and I, I originally started, a blog, I guess, and it just takes a certain level of dedication that I don't have. I'm not going to sit down every day and just do that. It um, it was a bit of a jump in the beginning because, like I said, I'm an introvert, and I'm every time I sit down in front of the camera, I'm uncomfortable. I I don't want to be there. But after five minutes, I just kind of warm up, and uh, the the process of editing, I mean, you have to watch yourself, you have to listen to yourself. And that was difficult with the first video. I actually made a video about switch mode power supplies was the first thing that I did. And I just couldn't stand listening to myself. So I ended up deleting it. <laughs> so I totally, totally trashed it. That That's um, exactly what we did with our first episode of the podcast. Oh, really? oh it was so bad. Yeah. <laughs> like this yeah, never and... leaves the house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I just trashed it. And, um, I, I, I stepped away from it for like six months, but then I did the um, the uh, measuring distortion video, the video number one, and uh, I said, you know what, I'm just going to put it out there. Um, and it was a little bit of a difficult thing because when you hit that public button, you know, you're kind of, I guess, like releasing your video out under like global peer review, you know, so people are either going to love it or they're going to hate it. Um, and in the beginning, absolutely nobody's watching, right? So yeah, there's that level of comfort, but you also have to realize if you're going to leave that there, people are going to see that in a few years, you know. So weird. I've had people like click a, like comment on a video I made like eight years ago, and be like, "Why'd you make this video?" Is like the comment. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, people boy. will go check out your backlog. That's for sure. Yeah, and and oh, I, yeah. I have to admit that's that's you chose two pretty beefy topics for your very first video i mean switch mode power supplies and uh um distortion analyzing that's that's a lot for a, for a first video yeah the the power supply thing was pretty cool because i was looking at a power supply that i had in my dsa and my dsa is from like 1981 so it's this huge enormous thing with these giant diodes and caps and i basically compared it to a, a tiny one that was the same power output and just how things have evolved over the decades was interesting but i, I just the one of the things that i've learned is that the pace of the video you've got to speed it up like the first five videos or whatever i did i, I can't listen to them because they're just they're so slow like now if you notice um it's the editing is much more fast paced and you got some jump cuts easier. yeah it's easier to watch you know and i think i'm learning what people want and what i should be doing and you know just that tendency to just ramble on i'm trying to not do so much anymore well okay so i have no information on this in fact i'm i'm curious about it i would think or guess that uh engineers are maybe a little bit more tolerant to rambling or 
listening for something because they like the topic or they like what the where the video is going. Whereas, because I mean, I've heard plenty of advice where you know if you don't capture someone in the first five seconds of a video, they're not going to watch anything more. I would think an engineer would do would stick around a little bit longer if they know what the topic is about. See, I'm the I guess the exact opposite. I'll like see how long the video is and like skip to like a third the way in and see where it's at. Oh, okay, maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I will watch something if I'm interested, truly interested in the subject. I will sit there and I'll watch somebody take a nap for five minutes, right? But if somebody's building something uh, and they're just taking too long, I will skip like to the end of the video. And uh, it's weird looking at the statistics. Like YouTube gives you some statistics in the back end you can look at, and uh, the average view time for one of my videos is four minutes. So that's like a third of you know, the video's length or a quarter of the video's length. So I don't know if I've hit the nail on the head yet, but I'm trying to get better. So we'll see what happens. Cool. Yeah. I was, it was, it's one of those things where like YouTube, it's uh, YouTube, like we look at a lot of videos that people are putting out on YouTube now, mostly about 10 minutes long. Right. Um, it, I think that's because of monetization and stuff, but like maybe that's also like the average, youtuber watches like only like a 10 minute video yeah if you look at what what's suggested out there they say to make like a when you're starting out they say make like a five 10 minute at the max video and uh there are guys like uh i don't know if you watch the signal path blog where he does like super advanced rf stuff and uh he'll go really in depth for like 45 minutes sometimes an hour and i'll watch that because that's what i want to see but you know if it's something else that that's a bit bit you know, long in the tooth. Yeah. So um, this is kind of jumping back to earlier where you were, you did the YouTube channel to kind of contribute back to mm-hmm. things that, because you were like Googling and searching on YouTube for how to get stuff done. Have you ever like Googled something and found the answer in one of your own pieces of content? <laughs> uh, no, no, I haven't. Not yet anyway. <laughs> That'd be awesome. No, I think uh, with only... I don't think I'm contributing all that much yet. I mean, I've got almost 3,000 subscribers, which, you know, when you look at the grand scheme, isn't that great. But uh, I was actually, I I try to separate um, my work uh, from the YouTube thing. So I don't want, you know, my videos showing up on my my boss's desk. Um, Just, you know, I'd like to keep those two things separate. But uh, I was actually in the office in Germany. And one of the new electrical engineers that we hired was looking up something, and he was showing me Dave Jones. You ever see this guy? And one of my videos popped up in the in the sidebar. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh, I just had to, like, divert his attention somewhere else. <laughs> that's pretty funny. So, so how long have you been doing it for? So about uh, two and a half years now, I think, yeah. Okay. And how and, many uh, videos do you have up? Um, I think total 35 or 36 i mean there are a couple that are just little announcements but uh yeah i don't i don't follow a super rigid format or a lot of youtubers will release something every two weeks but i found that you know i've got a full-time job i've got a family uh that stuff takes priority uh the videos are kind of secondary unfortunately you know i'm not going to make a full-time job out of it that's not my goal um so i release things whenever whenever i can and unfortunately sometimes that's like every four weeks sometimes it's two it just depends on you know uh, the difficulty of the video sometimes they're just talking about flipping bits right and that's pretty easy to do but uh, i think the most difficult video was the doppler shift uh, video so i was running around 
buying sheet metal, making antennas. I didn't have this coax. I had to go buy connectors and just, it was poor scheduling. So a lot of that stuff is uh, really, I've really worked at, um, I do like three or four videos in parallel. So I'm always procuring parts. I'm planning a shot list. I'm writing a script if I'm doing a voiceover, that kind of stuff. So uh, I think things have become a lot more efficient. So you should probably see things every three weeks now on average, as long as I'm not traveling. So, Or a kid sick or something. Yeah, yeah, that stuff definitely takes priority. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the... Uh, we talked about a couple of the projects so far, but what's your favorite project you've done so far? Um, or I th- and I guess we can also jump into like what made the Doppler one really hard to do. So we um, do both I, well, those. Okay, <laughs> well, let's do the Doppler one because we're already there. Um, I, I I ran across this article in the ARL handbook, so American Radio Relay League handbook, which is a, a ham radio, um, the Bible, I guess you could say. Sounds like a page turner. Well, I mean, it's a great book if you're into electronics. You don't even have to be a ham radio operator. It's it's everything that you're going to learn as a double E. It's but it's really packed pretty densely in this mag in this magazine. It's a book. Uh, there's a lot of RF stuff in the back, so there's really a lot of good information if you just want to learn something quick. Probably not as good as the art of electronics or as focused on general electronics, but there's a lot of good info in there. But there was a um, just a paragraph about radio direction finding techniques. So you take uh, like four antennas, arrange them in a circle, and you switch one on at a time at a certain speed. And depending on uh, the direction you're going, um, you can determine by the amplitude and the phase shift of the uh, the signal you're receiving, you can find out where that uh, source antenna is. So, and I'm probably doing a pretty bad job of explaining it now, but... Uh, I wanted to understand it better. So there was a lot of experimentation that went on before I even did the video to make sure that I could explain it um, in a way that anybody could understand. And also procuring the parts. I'd never used pin diodes before. Uh, the, the coax had to be a certain length. And What's a pin math. diode? I never uh, heard of that before. So I'm going to have to... So a pin diode is used a lot of times to switch antennas on and off. And... I'm going to revert to Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually, I said, I, I asked that question and I heard click, 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 click. <laughs> I'm like, oh. You... <laughs> yeah, so, uh, Wikipedia says it's, uh, so there's an intrinsic layer. That's right. I have to breach back because it's been a while, but there's an intrinsic layer uh, in between. So um, there's an NNP junction and uh, they're heavily doped. And what you, you can use them to switch on. Um, RF, switch it on and off, and uh, it turned out that um, I could use these diodes with the DC bias to turn them on and off um, to change the uh, the um, uh, what's the region in the center there? Oh my depletion god, depletion region. The depletion region uh, with the DC bias, so you can turn these antennas on and off. And uh, I hooked up a microcontroller. You could switch each antenna on and off to control this uh, effective rotation of uh, the antennas. So it's so it's it's kind of almost the boundary between a diode and a transistor, in a, a yeah, in a way. way. Yeah, that's cool. I like how I I thought it would mean something else. Like pin stood for something. No, it's the p the p and p n junction with an i junction, I junction in, between. in between. Yeah, <laughs> which is basically a base on a BJT. Yeah, just minus the actual physical connection to it. 
That's cool. Right. And you can control control the uh, size of the that um, intrinsic region. So that was cool because I never used those before. I think you know some of the things like SCRs and pin diodes that they mention you know in textbooks and in school are the things that I don't understand 100%, and that's what I want to do videos about so I can better understand them or get that last 10%. Yeah, that's, that's pretty bold to go and pick something that you don't know about and then have to learn all about it so you can make a video. That's really cool. Well, yeah, I think I think some people, I'm not going to name names, but <laughs> they'll make videos and, you know, it's almost obvious that they don't fully understand it, but they're... Hopefully you're not talking stuff. about our podcast. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> because you might be slightly accurate. <laughs> if I don't know something, I'm going to say it, you know, and I think it's important that, that people that are getting into electronics, you know, not everybody's an expert. You know, you're, you're learning all the time, so... I'm learning all the time, and I hope that comes through. Yeah, I would say the one thing about the podcast I've learned about myself is how little I know about some things. So, yeah, like, like pin diodes. I had no idea those actually existed. That's kind of cool. I had no idea. I have difficulty explaining it. <laughs> <laughs> well, they don't seem like they're particularly easy to understand just well, off the get-go. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. So um, what, uh, what, what projects are you currently working on? So um, I have a cool project coming up where I don't know if you've heard of uh, David Kronstein. Uh, he's at Tesla 500 on Twitter. He's got that uh, high-speed Kronos camera that he developed on his own. Um, well, that's actually, just impressive by itself. Yeah. So I, I just reached out and contacted him and said, hey, can I borrow that camera? I've got some, some ideas I want to work on. One of the things is uh, contact bounce. So I want to take a high-speed video of an actual relay. Uh, doing contact bounce and showing it on the scope and then other ways to mitigate, you know, um, avoiding that or filling in those contact bounce gaps. Um, so then that sounds got... really badass. Yeah, that's that's really cool. Are, wait, yes. are you are you going to do that under a load so you can see it spark? That's a good idea. Because that try... would be really cool. I'm going to try every possible way that I can. I don't think I'll be able to catch the, the, the cathode ray on the oscilloscope changing because it'll be too dim at you know, I wanted to synchronize them side by side. I don't know if that's actually going to work, um, but you know, I'll I'll definitely try that. I'll try to stick it under a, a load and, and try to get it to spark. Yeah, because the the big thing about relays is under load is they can contact real easy, and you know, there's bounce and stuff there. But it's actually unsticking the the contacts too. Oh yeah, they can fuse together. Sure. Yeah, that'd be really cool. The video, like when it's actually ripping away and how the the I guess the contact will probably flex a lot before it snaps off. It's going right. to break like a really tiny weld. Yeah. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, so we'll try that. And I've got, that's actually a good point. I'm, um, I thought, what else could I do with that? So I've got this big fat uh, SCR that's uh, in a, a puck um, form factor and uh, a high voltage cap that I'm going to put. Uh, across some devices and just basically destroy them under about 12, 1200 or fifteen hundred volts. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> I think that, I think you actually should... emailed in on a previous podcast about that puck. Yeah, yeah, I bought that thing, and uh, you guys were asking what people are working on, and I, you know, that thing I got at my local surplus shop, and it just kind of sat on the shelf, and I'm like, what am I going to do with this? So um, I think I finally found a good use for it. it it's calling. It's calling me. Yep, I wiped the dust off, and we're gonna. I actually tested it out the other day. It works okay. So, 
it's not every day that a hobbyist needs you know a switch for 600 volts 100 amps you know yeah i think this is uh has a peak current capability of 75 kiloamps or something like that. Jeez. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So it, the, the, the problem is getting all the energy out of the capacitor as fast as possible, right? So the only the cap that I have is a paper and oil capacitor. Those so, are pretty fast. Yeah, yeah. I was hoping for a little bit more, but uh, they're pretty pricey on eBay. Oh, so. yeah. What, what, uh, what size is it? Uh, I mean, capacitance. I think it's 75 microfarad at uh, 1,200 volts is the max. Oh, wow. That's that's pretty beefy. Which, yeah. I mean, when I did that capacitor video, um, I was just using basically a knife switch to switch it in and out of circuit, um, which I think a lot of energy was wasted in that arc. So I'm hoping that the SCR just dumps it. I think it should dump, uh, the, if it's 1,200 volts, I think it dumps it in about five microseconds or something like that. So... I think the limitation will be the internal resistance of the capacitor. But we'll see. It's bringing me back to the days of having to calculate joules. Oh, yeah. Joules. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of those units where it's just like you calculate it, but you don't really have like a, a feel for it. Like Yeah, you have no frame of reference. Yeah, yeah like yeah. what's a joule? Like, well, no, like, and then well, your professor would be like, oh, yeah, it's this many. Ele- oh, it's like this many electrons. And it's just. And, okay. Yeah, <laughs> you can't yeah, see yeah. electrons. Right, but but at the same time it's like one joule. Is that a lot or is that a little of what? You know, like it it's just doesn't connect. So yeah, I guess I think that that uh, capacitor video I had a, a, a sheet of um a blank bare copper PCB. It was double sided and I was just trying to figure out how many electrons were on the surface. And uh the number was so high it's just you you have no concept of, of what that even means. Yeah. You know, so Yeah. So yeah, that's coming up. Um, so we do the contact bounce thing. I'm currently working on a, um, a 16-bit flip dot array. Um, I'm kind of switching. Uh, usually there's a permanent magnet, permanent magnet mounted to the disc, and then there's a coil that changes polarity and flips the disc. This is yeah. going to be the opposite. Ah, oh, um, so where did you get this array at? Because I've seen some people get these at like um, surplus shops, and I actually almost went to a it was the uh, metro here in Houston but they were replacing all their buses they were replacing all the flip dots with LED and you know show up and it's just like tons of people just trying to snag those displays oh no kidding that'd be awesome no I'm just making this from scratch uh, the the, the well, dots that's actually cooler <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I hope it works it worked on the breadboard so I just finished building the, uh, there's a 16-bit driver. It's a push-pull circuit connected to a microprocessor. And the, uh, the, the dots are actually made from the circuit board material, and I've etched a planar uh, coil onto them. And uh, What? As you change... yeah, they're <laughs> That's pretty cool. You're blowing my mind at the moment. <laughs> I got to see this. Well, I guess I have yeah, to wait I mean, for the video. <laughs> they're little eyelets on the, uh, on the poles, and they can flip uh, on those eyelets. And I found that you can't use... A high volt, a higher voltage, because they'll arc and they'll they'll actually get welded. So you have to use a, a current source. So I made a push pull current source that's going to flip those things. Hopefully, we'll see. Oh, so you just have a fixed current that you push into it and it flips? Yeah, yeah. It it works on the breadboard. I'm just hoping that the <laughs> the whole thing works. So okay, so. I, I have to ask: Are you using like? Are you going to paint them neon green like the like the bus ones or? 
I've got the I've got the yellow airbrush paint. Yeah. Ah, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> they they got to be that weird yellow green color. Chartreuse. Right. I don't believe that chartreuse Parker. <laughs> yeah, chartreuse. That yellow. That yellow green. Uh, yeah, look up chartreuse. That's what that, yeah, that's what that color is. I don't know. I, I guess in my mind, it's it's a slightly different. Yeah, that's a yellow green. Oh shoot! I, yeah, I was pulling it up. That's that's pretty much well done. Is Parker. it chartreuse? Well yeah, done. Chartreuse. Yeah, chartreuse. You know, it's really oh, fu- okay. This is a weird side tangent. Is chartreuse like here in the Gulf when you go fishing? Like the lures they use have some chartreuse on it. Nothing in real life is that color. Yet it makes fish go crazy and want to bite it. Huh. Hmm. So sort of like sort of like green screen color. They they pick that because it doesn't exist in nature. Probably. Yeah. yeah. And and the same with if you do blue screen too, that, that doesn't exist. So You mean that it's kinda of like a blue sky. But that like particular oh, shade. That shade okay. That one particular shade yeah. of green and blue. Don't I don't know. I'm talking at my ass now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, that green screen is very difficult to do. I tried to do that for one of the videos where I was going to put a background, but the the problem is when you bounce the light off of the wall that you've painted green, it tends to bleed into your shoulders, so um, it makes it look like your arms are eroding away. I haven't exactly mastered that yet. <laughs> is, isn't it a matter of just getting the the light perfect on you? I think that's kind of... It's got to be evenly distributed on the wall behind you and you have to be far enough away from it where it, you don't get the reflection right yeah it's so, like yeah. it um and you have to have the right color shirt and yeah. right yeah and it has to be they have special paint for it that's really non-reflective i was just using matte paint from the local hardware store with an awful green <laughs> <laughs> it was free <laughs> basically yeah yeah so yeah there's that um I'm working on a a, a tem cell. So what's a so, tem cell? Um, so when you develop a product and you need to go for, uh, you know, you need to go into the big anechoic chamber with the antenna and do your mm-hmm. FCC testing, which I'm sure a lot of the listeners have had to go through at some point. Um, you go in there, you spend X number of dollars. They test it. They tell you, oh, sorry. You're yeah, you spent. failed. Yeah. Now you have to go stick a bunch of ferrite beads on everything. So either do yeah. it there. <laughs> That's the only one it is. Literally, that's what you do. This is the thing about that, though, okay, is you you fail, right? And they're like, well, can we just stop the test? They're like, no, we got to finish the test. I'm like, no, I want to stop it now so I can fix it because it's going to be another two hours to test it in that chamber. Oh, my. Yeah, but they they tell you, oh, we we might fail further out. I don't care if I fail further out. Yeah, fix it now. Yeah, let's get that on a Yeah, but, you know, money. Yeah, they're milking you for that. that, Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah that per hour base charge right so then you have to mess with it and then come back and sometimes i guess depending on that the the emc house you know they they'll let you just jump back in or they'll charge you again i don't know uh but the tem cell is basically it kind of simulates that environment it's it's a 50 ohm transmission line right but it's expanded so it's got three layers to it um kind of hard to explain oh uh, yeah I, I know what you're talking about i've seen so there's a, before. yeah there's a 50 ohm load on one side and then you you have your uh, spectrum analyzer connected to the other side and you basically stick your product inside of it and anything that disturbs that um, transmission line will show up on your spectrum analyzer so it kind of roughly simulates um that kind of testing environment so i've got a bunch of aluminum 
uh, left over from the Doppler shift, uh, and I'm going to chop that thing up and make make a tem cell out of it. And you, uh, from what I read, you can get within like six dB of the actual measurements. Yeah, that would... that's actually pretty good. I didn't know they were that good. I don't um. know if that's true, so <laughs> I want to I want to kind of test that out. But anyway, it'll it aluminum you... foil and two by fours, right? That'll get you within six dB. There you go. Making a big old pyramid out of aluminum foil. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen worse. So, so, it, but it allows you to take relative measurements, right? So, if you're putting out this much noise, then you should be able to take that board out of the temp cell, try to find the source of the noise, you rectify it, and then put it back in and see if you've improved it. Yeah, yeah. You know? That's the big thing about, um, what is it, uh, pre-compliance testing. Exactly. Is, yeah. um, is all, it's all relative because you can... You can turn it on, and you're going to have all the noise that exists in your area being pumped into your, you know, signal analyzer. Right. And um, so, yeah, and then the whole, yeah, the whole thing is just relative. So you you put your device in, see how much it affects the environment, basically, and then tweak from there. Well, you get a baseline. Yeah. yeah. What I've always figured is if you can turn on your device and you don't see the noise floor in the room change you probably okay another thing that uh, spectrum analyzers are, are capable of doing is measuring the ambient environment and then you can subtract it out from the measurements you're currently taking um so i'm oh, not sure cool. how to do that along with it i think that would make sense so do, do, you, do you hook up an antenna to one of the inputs uh the transmission line is kind of the antenna right you've got a 50 ohm load on one side it's like you're connecting electrically a 50 ohm load to your spectrum analyzer but it's like you've cut open the coax and shoved in your circuit ah uh, okay okay i got you i got you that makes sense yeah yeah because the so, the tops are the shields and right. then the middle plate is the signal path right right right, right and right. you stick your product on the bottom shield of the coax yep yep so that might be an interesting one uh that'll take a little bit of work though and uh, I'll be cutting some aluminum on the table saw, which scares the crap out of me. Oh, I do that all the time. <laughs> do you? Is it it's, really yeah. not, it's not that bad. It, it, it does seem scary. You know what's actually scarier is, is uh, cutting plexiglass on a uh, table saw. I hate that, especially because it smells terrible and gets crap yeah. all over you, and it can bite and weld. Ooh, cutting yeah. aluminum is really not that bad. It's noisy. Okay. Well, that makes me feel a yeah, little bit Yeah, aluminum is very noisy cutting on a table saw. Um, but, yeah, I've never had any... I mean, I've had this blade on my table saw and abused. I've cut aluminum and I've cut plexiglass, acrylic, plywood, and just cut some some cedar planks a couple of days ago, and it cut them just fine. So somehow this ten dollar you know Home Depot saw is doing pretty good. It's a trooper. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I've used a chop saw to cut aluminum before, but uh, never a table saw. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs> or not. If it doesn't go well, we won't hear back from you. <laughs> I'll have somebody upload the video of my demise. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, um, next week um, I'll be in Germany. So I was thinking about doing a video while I was out there about uh, scaling down um, like a 4.2 lithium-ion battery to an acceptable level uh, for measuring with an ADC on like a 3.3 volt part. Um, because th that was one of the things that I wasn't um, really used to was uh, – I'm used to plugging things into the wall. Who cares what the power consumption is? And, uh, you know, you just let it rip. But um, 
I've been doing a lot of battery powered Bluetooth low energy stuff. So I might start incorporating some of that, um, some of those things into the videos in case uh, people are interested in that. Yeah, usually my um, my solution to like things I've designed is just put more batteries in it. <laughs> yeah, just put like a giant like RC car battery on it. Yeah, or um, I've been going more towards like eighteen six fifty style cells. Yeah, and you just like you just carry extras of those in your backpack, and you're fine. So right. Yeah, I've been doing some weight critical things for uh, the semiconductor stuff, so we have to make we're trying to make things the same weight as a wafer which is a little bit of a challenging design constraint but, is that like uh, for balancing or something um so when you when you program a robot to like extend its arm um depending on the size of the robot and the rigidity of it you have this cantilever sticking out in space right so it wants to droop hmm. um, in fact we have some really really big robots that are you know 20 feet tall and when you when you extend that out under a payload it'll droop like a few inches so things get a little more complicated there and that's uh, one of the things that we have to consider when writing software for for this stuff the actual droop of the mechanical part of the arm yeah you have to start taking some mechanical things into consideration when the robots scale up so that's awesome well it's not fun <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you so do you have like a model? I guess you have a, a software model that replicates what this arm does in the physical world? Uh, so yeah, we have uh, simulators uh, for the robots. A lot of that stuff is, um, you know, they have really advanced mechanical design software, CAD software out there that'll simulate this kind of um, this kind of stuff. But uh, as far as... Uh, I'm not sure what they're using. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, when I get it, we just hook it up to we have an actual simulator so it's a box and it's the same electronics that run the actual robot controller so you've got the same kinematic control systems and everything and the same amplifiers so um, it's simulated pretty closely to what it'll be in the real world as far as acceleration deceleration how fast it can move so if they if the customer wants to get uh, throughput numbers we can just run it on the simulator and do do all that stuff but yeah there's actually a um it plugs into our computer and we can see a 3d model of the robot spinning around it's pretty cool yeah i guess without that would be difficult yeah i guess yeah i I was going to say is i bet you the process of pushing new code to one of these 20-foot robots is a little bit different than you know, just sit and, you know, get go on your computer. Yeah, you have to really, because there's nothing around the robot in this 3D environment, you really have to think about what's happening in the real world, especially if you're pushing something out, you want it to be safe. And, you know, there are things that it could collide with all around. And usually the, the end effectors, which is the, the technical term for the, the hands on the robot, are either made out of ceramic or, or some kind of material that will, will basically crumple, right? So, and they're expensive. It could be carbon fiber, and uh, you don't want to destroy them. So you really have to test things out pretty thoroughly before you go and hand it off to, to the customer. So it's interesting. Have you guys ever had a robot just completely freak out? Um, we haven't had a robot freak out, but I did have... <laughs> So we do we do Semicon every year, and this is the the semiconductor convention. Where everybody, you know, just like any other convention, oh, they show uh, off their cool cool new stuff. Yeah, yep. So we always have robots there, um, and I work from home, so I was at home, 
and at the time we were in a different place, but we had a shed and I actually had them ship it to my house. It was this huge equipment front end module, you know, the big monster things you see on the front of equipment in the fabs. I had that put into my, my shed in the backyard and, uh, I guess I wasn't paying attention or I just, it was late and I had the, the robot extended into the load port, which is the, one of the doors on the front. And I commanded it to close the door. <laughs> so the ceramic end effector just got smacked and totally destroyed. And, uh, it was a pretty expensive piece of equipment. So yeah, I'm actually was... surprised they just, they, just, they, the first of all, they, they got approved just to put it in your shed. <laughs> <laughs> Well, when you're the only software guy working on something, they'll they'll do anything, they'll do crazy huh? Crazy things, yeah, yeah. But uh, we got it working eventually. Unfortunately, I had to get another pair of end effectors, which yeah, the boss man wasn't too happy about. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like an awesome. Oh, it sounds like an awesome job. It's like I get to, you know, program robots and stuff, and you're like in my shed in my backyard. <laughs> <laughs> <In> my shed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> No, it's cool and it's fun. It's uh, it's it's it can be a little high high pressure though, you know, because when a company orders a robot, it's usually one of the most expensive things on the equipment. So you usually have somebody just perched on your shoulder while you're you know programming, and it makes it a little bit uh, of a stressful environment. But uh, but it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool moving motors around and watching things, you know, perform tasks in the fab that you normally have no view into. Yeah. So, so actually, well, well I see when it's like we need to finish. So I, but no, I have one more thing. I have one more thing. Is um, so if you want to get into doing like, well, you, anyone can make a YouTube channel, but if you want to get into like doing like robotics and stuff like you do, how do you get started in doing that? Um, I would, I would definitely <laughs> follow like a computer engineering degree. Um or electrical engineering. Um, I think I kind of got lucky. I am interested in a lot of different things. So I try to learn as much as I can about, you know, electronics, welding, programming, machining, um, you know, and just don't be scared to, to jump in and get your feet wet and just start doing this stuff. Um, a lot of people are intimidated by soldering and surface mount, you know, just go out there, get yourself a kit, um, learn as much stuff as you can, you know, get into school, you know, stay in school, and uh, you know the experience. Don't do drugs. <laughs> Don't do drugs. <laughs> Drink your milk. Do your homework. Those are those are eat my your final. vitamins. <laughs> so, yeah, just get your hands dirty and and uh, you know. Well, because it's like you know when you're growing up, you're like, I want to build robots, and it's like, okay, how do you get to building robots? Which is what you get to do. Yeah, I um, actually found my resume online um, after. After I left, I worked at Texas Instruments for for about ten years in Dallas, and uh, I was in the semiconductor, obviously, uh, area, and uh, wrote a lot of software there. But I got kind of kind of burned out on the software thing, and I, I I took off and went and worked with my brother-in-law as a graphic designer and photographer for a little while, and uh, I learned a lot of cool stuff there. Um, but it wasn't my thing, you know, engineering and tearing things apart that's that's my thing so i just stuck my resume out there and these guys happen to be in town from germany and uh they they actually found me so um i think the the thing was i had a large skill set and uh, a lot of it was geared toward robotics you know i I played around i'd made some uh three-axis cnc routers 
uh, from scratch. You know, if you put that kind of stuff in your resume and you apply to these jobs, uh, you've got a foot in the door um, ahead of anybody else that's just, you know, a recent college graduate, hasn't done any uh, hobbyist stuff or anything related to electronics. You know, just get out there, start making boards, start making your own robots, you know, learn stuff. Yeah, I, I would I would almost say that's probably one of the best things to tell someone is like how do i get into robots is just mm -hmm. start making them you know and like if you want to you'll figure out the way to do it and i know that's like that's not a lot of like information and that's probably not what people want to hear but but really like if you if you want to you'll start researching it you'll find ways you'll find groups you'll find internet sites you'll find whatever it needs to get it done Right. And it's way more accessible nowadays than it was. I mean, there were people making CNC routers, and that's how I got into it. But you've got 3D printers that work along the same kind of principles of acceleration, deceleration, open, closed loop control systems. You know, learn that stuff. If somebody asks you that in, in an interview, and, you know, you can explain it, at least even at a high level, you, you know, you're ahead of other people. So. Yeah, awesome. Definitely. Yeah. So. Derek, where could other people find more information about your YouTube channel and you? So you can go to thecurrentsource.com. Um, I've got my contact information. If you guys want to contact me, you can do it through there. If you have ideas for the uh, high-speed camera coming up, you can contact me there. Uh, just go to uh, uh, search me out on uh, The Current Source on YouTube. And I'm also on Twitter at TCurrentSource. Oh, you've got an old... Uh youtube url too it's actually the current source 555 correct yeah because the new if you make a new youtube channel now it just gives you like a hash string that's your channel yeah so the og stuff is you actually your name was the extension or the uh oh, url it? okay yeah it's actually now it's youtube.com slash the current source 555 huh cool <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> every day. Yeah. So, Derek, do you want to sign us out? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Here it is. That was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I was your guest, Derek Broder. And we were your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Guys. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our show. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic that you want Stephen and I to discuss, tweet us at MacFab or email us at podcast at MacFab.com or comment on a Derek's video on YouTube. Also, check out our Slack channel. If you're not subscribed to the podcast yet, click that subscribe button. That way you get the latest episode right when it releases. And please review us on iTunes. It helps the show stay visible. It helps new listeners find us.